While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. This is a podcast about the books that you or myself or my compatriot have been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And I decided to mix it up this week because I couldn't settle on a good open. <laughs> my favorite football team is the compatriots. Yeah. The uh, the old England compatriots. Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing. Uh, later on this episode, Andrew's going to tell us all about or some about Jeffrey Eugenides' Middlesex. Uh, but before we get there, I want to answer a question from one of our listeners. Uh, from a couple episodes, we we read, or I read, Turn of the Screw by Jeff. Not who wrote Turn of the Screw? Henry James wrote Turn of the Screw. And uh, Jillian asked, I, you know, why was it called Turn of the Screw? She didn't stutter when she typed it into Facebook. <laughs> she, she just asked, why was it called Turn of the Screw? And I'm kind of surprised I, we didn't answer this, because it seems pretty elementary. It seems like one of those things that we should kind of institute as part of the show. Like, why like, is this book called what it's why called? Why is this book <laughs> Welcome to this part of Overdue, where we talk about why the book is called what it's called. In this week's mailbag, why didn't you do your basic due diligence? <laughs> Love your fans. <laughs> uh, and from what I understand in the turn of the screw, I went back to the to the text, and the the story, which if you will remember, if you've been listening for a couple weeks now, you will remember is a ghost story about children, and uh, <laughs> not ghost children, but children, uh, and some ghosts who are involved. Children and ghosts as they relate to those children. Yeah, that's yeah. Okay. That that was the first title of <laughs> Screw. Um and there's a bunch of, you know, rich people with nothing better to do kind of sitting around at the start of the story before we even get to the ghost part and they're talking about telling scary stories. And one of them says, you know, it's not the first occurrence of its charming kind that I know to have involved a child. If the child gives the effect another turn of the screw, what do you say to two children? Uh, And that's the first use of the phrase turn of the screw in the book. It sounds like a really lame meeting of the Midnight Society to me. (laughs) It really is. It's it's like the Midnight Salon where we all sit around in my drawing room and, you know, drink out of snifters and tell each other crappy ghost stories actually turn of the screws a pretty good story it's, you know, whatever. We talk <laughs> let's not about sell it story. short let's not sell it too short that's not canon for our canonical thoughts on turn of the screw please, please. listen to <laughs> the episode that we did about it i don't even know what number it was probably it was probably four or five episodes ago right something yeah something like that so there you go i don't know henry james is talking about uh you know ratcheting up the spookiness of the story or the uh i guess the stakes of the story the turn of the screw yeah um how could things possibly get worse i suppose um there's no screws in the story and no one turns around very often so it's not a literal meaning (laughs) thanks julian (laughs) 
Yeah. Thanks, thanks for writing in. We really appreciate your mail, and you should send us more questions. Because what else podcasts. are we going to do? Yeah. Okay. So yeah. So as Craig was saying earlier, before we did a flashback, was <laughs> that this is a <laughs> podcast where we read books, and then one of us reads a book and then tells the other one about how the book was. Yeah, and usually we have a little more energy than this. I don't know what's going on. It's like. Well, we record these like sometimes two at a time and there's no like real set schedule. We just kind of read and record as we, as we go. And normally we have a pretty good buffer and this week we don't, this is it's Saturday night at nine thirty eight, <laughs> and the, sh- this show that you're listening to now will go up Monday in like 48 hours or mm-hmm. less. Mm-hmm. And this has been, this is like the shortest amount of time between recording and episodes. So normally like we have a little more flexibility and this week we don't, we just kind of have to go in and mine the, the insightful observations for your benefit. <laughs> <laughs> That's not, that is not a good run. That really petered out towards the end there. You're, you're going pretty good. Um, so as we said, what did you read this week? You read a book. I read a book, yes, correct. What was it called? It was called Middlesex by Jeffrey Eugenides. All right, I don't, I don't know anything about that book except that, excuse me, it is an Oprah book. Not that yeah. Oprah wrote it. Oprah yeah. liked that book. <laughs> the last few books that we've done, yeah, have all been kind of like nineteen hundred ish within a few years of it, and they've kind mm-hmm. of been like formative books in the particular genre that they're that they are a part of like yes. a lot of the a lot of the tropes and the cliches and things that exist in those genres to this day you know go all the way back to some of those books uh mm-hmm. we're getting a little more modern this is this is a book from like the 2000s i think really is it that recent um 2000s or late 90s but yeah i'm pretty sure it's 2000s it's pretty recent 2003 i think okay and um, it was an Oprah book in 2007. I hope that you will not hold that against it. <laughs> well, because when I think Oprah books, I think like The Secret. Well, that's not even – that transcends whether or not it's a book. That's a way of life, The Secret is. <laughs> we should – you should put The Secret on your list. You should read it, and we should spill the beans. We should tell everyone what The Secret is. Oh, my God. Tune in tomorrow when <laughs> I've read The Secret. <laughs> Because I'm going to go buy it right now. Okay, but so anyway. Middlesex by Jeffrey Eugenides. Because we did such a bad job of this in the Turn of the Screw podcast, apparently, we should start <laughs> with why the book is called Middlesex. Can you – okay. Is it any sort of um, – very few books have their title be any sort of spoiler. So I guess I can ask you right off. It's part – It's not. you're not going to ruin anything about the book by telling me what it means, right? You know. Well, okay, it's it's kind of interesting because this book is stuffed with uh like dual meanings and dualities and things that turn into other things or things that seem to be one thing but are actually another thing. So the title like ties into that. It has two meanings. One is uh the house that the protagonist lives in for most of his slash her childhood is on a street called Middlesex. Okay. And two, the protagonist slash narrator is a hermaphrodite who is raised as a girl, but um, now self identifies as a man. Okay. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, she was born Calliope Stephanides. 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 It's a Greek name. How do, how do we want to go? We want to go Stephanides or Stephanides? Stephanides. Stephanides. Unless you wanted to be like Stephanides, but I don't think that that's <laughs> no. correct. <laughs> no, that would be bad. Stephanides. Stephanides. And, okay. Um, and then, and then her, in her, her, in her name is... Hmm? Does she change her name when she starts? Uh, she changes her name to Cal when she okay. when right. she Easy be- enough. becomes a man. Right. So um, about half the book is about that, and then the other half of the book is about um, what kind of led up to the recessive gene mutation that um, caused her to be hermaph- hermaphroditic in the first place. What do you mean what led up to it? How does that wait? The book, How does that work? deals with and this is this is going to be a little love in the time of cholera ish in that (laughs) buckle up (laughs) in that there's a lot of uh jumping around in time that happens in the book it's not as confusing as that but it is in a similar vein so okay um i guess we'll start at the beginning and we'll just see yeah okay how are we introduced Hold to this on to story. Your butts. Yeah, hold on to your butts, as Samuel would say. How how does this story even start? Well, let's start at the beginning of like the timeline. Um it's like like Love in the Time of Cholera, it's told um the the narrator Cal is kind of writing it and it's semi autobiographical in that the narrator is is Cal Stefanides is you know is the person who a lot of the story is about. Um, but wait, but not autobiographical, like not Jeffrey Eugenides. No, it's 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 biographical of the of the character. Okay, like All I right. think Jeffrey Eugenides draws on a lot of his his background for the book, but that's something we can talk about in a little bit. All right, great. Um, so basically, in a small village in Greece, lives a woman named uh, Desdemona and her brother who is named Lefty. I think he has a real name, but that's what they call Wait, him through the that's whole that's an odd pairing of names, Desdemona yeah. and Lefty. All right, great. <laughs> Comedy so they're, duo. they're brother and sister, and they have feelings for each other that are not um, conventional. Okay. They're right. romantic. What, what time period is this? This is in the early 1900s. This is... So perfectly acceptable. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I want to say it's in like the interwar period between World War I and World War II. But it might might predate World War I by a little bit. I'm not... I don't remember, but... um, Are there cars? Yes, there are cars. Okay. But... um, so they they live in this very small village. There are not a lot of marriageable women, and so Lefty develops romantic feelings for his sister. Uh, so they are they're kind of trying to ignore these and deal with them, and then the Turks come in and uh, they just like burn the village to the ground, and they're like invading Greece and they're making stuff bad. And so their village gets burned down. Like everybody in it flees. And um, they end up on a boat to America, and because nobody really knows them or anything about them, they kind of set up as, uh, they get married, and they set up as husband and wife, and they just kind of okay. uh, pretend like they're not brother and sister. Okay, cool. That seems like a right plan. Yeah, so they go to America. They uh, meet their cousin, whose name is Lena, and uh, they go to live with her and her husband 
and um, there's a whole lot of kind of stuff that I'm glossing over. A big part of the book is it, it doesn't really deal with like the uh, trans, the um, hermaphroditic stuff or like the incest stuff directly. Like a lot of it is pretty like a pretty straight story about about some people, you know, immigrating to America. Weird. And um is it like not to not to put the cart before the horse, I suppose. Um <laughs> but is there are there any parallels drawn between uh the immigrant experience of possibly being out of place and what I would imagine the book starts dealing with in terms of uh being an, being a hermaphrodite and being caught in between, yeah, like and, and it's it's one of the many ways in which the book deals with like things being things being not as they seem or things transforming into other things is like you see Lefty kind of become a little more or less Americanized. Like he still, you know, he still writes Greek and speaks Greek and is is very Greek, but like he learns he learns English to get a job at at Henry Ford's factory and making cars, they move to Detroit. They end up in Detroit, which is a big, big part of the uh, story. And um, Jeffrey Eugenides is from Detroit. So I think he's drawing a lot from his childhood experience when he's talking about like what's going on there. But, um, and he becomes like a, a prohibition era, like rum runner. And, uh, he, he kind of, he kind of blends in with the culture a little bit where Desdemona has, trouble like becoming americanized and she still hangs on to to uh like greece and greek things cool and then um so yeah they, so they're living their lives they're, they're living, living their lives their, they live in detroit with their cousin and his and her husband uh they both get pregnant at the same time desdemona and lena do okay um, one give you know, they um, Desdemona and Lefty give birth to a little boy named Milton, and uh, Lena and her husband Jimmy give birth to a girl named Tessie. And there's a lot of other stuff that's happening um, with respect to like Lefty's employment situation <laughs> and all this stuff. Okay. Right? But in the interest of not just summarizing the book for an hour, okay, great. Um, Are things going well for them? Or less they're not going terribly um okay lefty uh, he he's a rum runner for a while and he runs like a speakeasy for a while and then when prohibition gets repealed he just runs like a straight up bar and restaurant and for a long for a long time they do pretty well okay um so milton and tessie the, the who are cousins or second second cousins i think okay they also get married <laughs> No. And they have a son who's not referred to by name in the book. Um, Eugenides refers to him as Chapter 11. That's just his his name. What? What? <laughs> what? We, wait. There are a couple, yeah, there are, there are a couple of characters who he assigns like pseudonyms to. Mm-hmm. Like and even though I don't I don't know that they actually you know correspond directly to actual people in Jeffrey Eugenides life, like in the in the narrative that the book sets up, like Cal writing the you know writing the account of events changes their names to protect the innocent. I guess. Oh, so is there? Wait, okay. So what is the conceit of the novel? Is the conceit that Cal knows that 
he's right he is writing a book yeah and that uh, and that people are reading it yeah he's like he's writing the account of his life as a hermaphrodite and like how it came to be because okay basically he has a recessive gene on his fifth chromosome and it's a problem because of all the inbreeding that's happening of course and that's what makes uh makes him uh hermaphroditic okay but that's all right. that's like so that's the setup in, that's in the like, past. Yeah, like the first half of the book, like it's divided into four quote unquote books. Book mm-hmm. one is Lefty and Desdemona like fleeing Greece and moving to America. Book two is Milton and Tessie like growing up in their courtship. And um book three is about Calliope's childhood and um early adolescence, and then book four is about like discovering that there is that she's not normal and like deciding that she identifies as a man and then like dealing with that. Okay. So that's the end of the book. Yeah, pretty much. Hmm. All right. Do you have the irony of knowing the whole time that she's going to change? Yeah. Like Cal as the narrator does a lot of foreshadowing of, of future events in the book. And in that it's, it's a lot like, Love in the Time of Cholera, which does a lot of jumping around and like throwing off sentences that kind of tell you how things are going to unfold. Mm-hmm. So you'll like Lefty will be doing something and um, it'll be like he'll be running his restaurant and then, you know, Cal will just like throw off a sentence about how eventually like he'll lose all their money by, you know, through gambling like 30 years later. Okay. So stuff like that happens pretty rampantly. And also it um, in between, you know, the historical sections of the book, you have flashes to the present where Cal is kind of developing a relationship with a photographer named Julie and like things are going well. But there's always like that big moment in any of his relationships where he has to tell them about his, you know, status as a hermaphrodite because. Is... Yeah. Is he in those scenes? Is at where? Where is he in his self identification? Um, he's he's a man like around age sixteen. Mm-hmm. Um, Calliope's parents take her to to New York to see a doctor who specializes in this kind of stuff. Okay, and just as he, like he comes to the conclusion, even though she's got like an XY chromosome, that she's been like raised as a girl and. Um, and so he's going to do some surgery on her and like give her some hormones to correct the imbalance and, um, make her, you know, make her a woman. And on the eve of that happening, Calliope says, no, I'm a boy. And she runs away from home. And then as Cal hitchhikes out to San Francisco and just kind of, there's a lot of transformation. Like she has to learn how to dress as a boy. She gets her hair cut. She, you know, starts identifying as Cal and like telling people her name is Cal. She mm-hmm. starts like trying to walk like a, like a man. It's kind of unlearning, you know, 15 or 16 years of, of conditioning. Yeah. How does the book handle that process? Like, is it, uh, is she learning from other people specifically or is she, who is she emulating? 
I'm just she's going through that boys that she's seen. It's kind of helped out by her hormones. I mean, and I get, and throughout this, this podcast, I think we're going to use her and he kind of enter, interchangeably. Yeah. And, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. you know, we're trying to treat that with the sensitivity that it deserves. But, um, you know, for, for a long time, she does self-identify as a, as a girl. And then at around 16, like there's a really clear cutoff is, is when she starts to identify as a, as a man. Mm. So I'll try to respect that where I can, but I may slip <laughs> here and there. <laughs> no, it's, it's difficult. Yeah. Um, what was your question? I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't know. How did, what is the, you know, it kind of sounds like a thing that were it a film could be like a, learning to be a man montage and i imagine that the, <laughs> the book is a little more sensitive than that it's but is it does it just like you were kind of saying it's it's both unlearning one gender and learning another like how is that handled and what kind of detail if you can think of anything yeah i mean a lot of it is just you know deciding to cut her hair different and dress differently and um, you know, how he presents himself to, to people now and mm. um, trying to walk with more of like a swagger to his shoulders rather than like swaying hips. Yeah. And um, in what time period is Callan? I'm sorry. I'm uh, Cal, to the timeline. She is or he is going through this in the like the, the early to mid 70s is, is when his puberty is. OK. And part of the reason you know, even though she identifies as a girl for the first part of her life and then as a man later on, um, there's still, you, you still get the idea that she's not, that he's not really fully in either camp. Mm. Mm-hmm. Like he still, he still kind of empathizes with women and can like talk with, with women in a way that he, you know, sees as, as feminine. Yes. Um, he'll still like go to the salon with his mother and like they'll get their hair done and stuff. <laughs> mm. Um But uh But is the transition is, it... is kind of helped along by the fact that for a couple of years, you know, other girls are like getting their periods and getting boobs and and that kind of stuff, and that's not happening to her. Oh okay. so she kind of knows that something isn't as it should be. And then the experience of being like poked at in, you know, at the doctor's office for two weeks and like talked to and like knowing that, you know, the, that her slash his genitals are not like normal. Yeah. Kind of brings that, it brings it all to the surface and kind of puts a point on something that's been coming for a while. Mm. Mm hmm. Though Cal, you know, is writing from the present and does kind of have the benefit of hindsight. And that that comes up a few times as it seems like Cal talks to his therapist or his doctor pretty regularly. And um, they're always or, you know, his doctor is always trying to point to stuff that happened like when when Calliope was five or six and. Huh. Like giving a doll milk with a bottle instead of like holding it up to her chest or something. Just the things that are like subconsciously masculine instead of fem- feminine. Interesting. And, and that's that's another big thematic thing in the book is like nature versus nurture. And like what about your sexual identity is learned and what is genetic? How does... What is it like to read that? I don't know that I've ever read something that tackles that. 
it can be kind of uncomfortable. And, uh, you know, maybe that's maybe that's just me and my sensibilities. Um, yeah. But it does go into there. Euphemisms are deployed regularly <laughs> when talking, especially when talking about like the genitals and like sex and stuff. But, yeah. Um, but it goes into some pretty clear detail about what. Um, and I don't even like I don't even know if this is because on this show, we try not to like swear. We try to keep it pretty like. Family friendly, I guess, because we yeah, assume sure. that like, their families. families are gathering around the <laughs> the radio Dad, to listen to Dad, this after. Dad, could you, Dad, put on overdue. <laughs> They're going to talk about War of the Worlds. Can you please turn on, put on the iPod dock, or just turn, just put your iPhone on loud so I can but listen to it in the bathtub. She like has a vagina. Okay, but because of hormones and just because of the recessive gene mm-hmm. there's there are like testicles in there and there's like something that's kind of penis ish in there. It's yeah, not but really it's not penis, fully formed, yeah. but yeah, like it can get erect. Oh, and, interesting. And when it is, it kind of pokes out of the vagina a little bit by like oh, man. an inch. And so, you know, imagine take how com- take how uncomfortable me telling you this is making you, <laughs> judging by your face. <laughs> and yeah, like even though Jeffrey Eugenides himself is, you know, he's a he's a man, and he has not, you know, this is yeah. not his experience that he's he's speaking from. It's uh, it's pretty, it's it's pretty personal feeling, and it's very mm. like detailed. And I and I think that you know actual hermaphroditic people and like doctors and things have mostly come out and said that this book does a pretty good job with that kind of thing. But, oh, okay. Yeah. That would be stuff... an interesting thing to, to go back and look at <laughs> yeah. more of. Cause the, the stuff that's coming from his personal history is like stuff about Detroit. Like there's a sequence in Calliope's childhood where they're there for like race riots. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. In, um, in I think the mid sixties or so mm-hmm. mid to early sixties. And how, yeah, like her dad, Milton, had inherited Lefty's bar and had like turned it into a diner and had done pretty well for a while. But then like white flight starts to set in and it's doing pretty poorly financially. And then Hmm. during the during the race riots, somebody burns it down Mm. and it's like it ends up being the best thing that ever happened to them because they had like three. Lefty took out three insurance policies on it. (laughs) What? Well, because when they were fleeing, um, when they were fleeing Greece, you know, one of the there, there's a pretty major plot point where the city that all these refugees have fled to is being like, being burned, burned to down. the ground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they only just barely get out on a ship because they're like pretending that they're French or something. I think. Interesting. Yeah, they're Go like two, two of very few. <laughs> people who actually make it out of the country so okay yeah like it's just it's this very like this whole sequence of events just leads up to calliope being born in a very like in a very specific way so it's it's interesting how how the two tales are kind of interwoven well and and lefty and desdemona are her his grandparents right yeah like okay how does this family tree work um, I don't know. You tell me. Lefty and Desdemona are her um, 
paternal grandparents. Yes. And then their cousin is her maternal grandmother. Yes. Oh, man. So I'd have to, like, draw it out because I don't really I don't even know really how, like, third cousins and cousins who are removed and stuff go. But yeah, I don't know that whole removed. Yeah. But there's there's seconds and (laughs) yeah, there's a lot of interbreeding that leads up to this to this moment. No, that's 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 quite all right. How do those people deal with that? Does that stuff come out? Does that stuff affect how they treat one another? Um, Desdemona and Lefty tell Lena when they get to the country and then it, they never tell anybody again. Um, Desdemona okay. tells Cal, like, right. It's one of the last things that happens in the book. Oh, interesting. Um, cause she's, you know, she, at this point she's very old. Lefty has been dead for many years mm. and she is kind of out of it a lot of the time, but she has like flashes of, of, um, of lucidity, I guess. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, um, you know, Cal, she's, she's, he's run away from home, gone to San Francisco, kind of become comfortable with himself and then come back. And, um, you know, in a, in a moment of clarity, Desdemona is like, oh, you're a, you're a boy now and, and claim some responsibility for it because, you know, because she and Lefty were siblings and, that, and it really, it haunts her. It haunts Desdemona a lot. Like it kind of, Cause her doctor says, you know, not knowing that they are brother and sister is like speaking at the dinner table about like birth defects and things that can happen when people who are related. Oh, together. of course, of course, of course that so, scene exists. Yeah. And so Desdemona is like very like Greek Orthodox, very religious. Yeah. And, um, is really, you know, is really worried about her children. Like it affects her marriage with lefty. She gets her tubes tied Hmm. Which was a pretty new procedure at the time, I think. Yeah. So she can't have any more kids. And then when, like, Milton and Tessie are displaying an interest in one another, she tries to... She tries really hard to not let that happen (laughs) for a long time. Oh, no. (laughs) Uh, Milton and Tessie aren't really bothered by it because they're only second, you know, only second cousins. Yeah. And they don't know about Desdemona and Lefty. So they, they don't really know what they're doing even you know with respect to yeah 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 huh i I guess a lot of this has been plot synopsis but it's it's all the all the stuff that happens in it is just it's a very it's sometimes wordier than it needs to be like i think that the whole first and second book with with desdemona and lefty coming to america and um you know, Milton and Tessie getting together. There's a lot of stuff in there that maybe doesn't need to be in there. Mm. Um, you know, it's it's interesting, like, background information, but it's not strictly necessary the way a lot of the book is strictly necessary. Well, and it's interesting, too, because the way you you talk about it, um, it does still feel like that, at least to you, is more important than beat by beat what Calliope goes through. Unless it's just the book spends less time on that. I don't well, know. I mean, it, it, it spends about equal time on both of them. But I mean, I think the kind of you can kind of sum it up a little more easily just to say that she had kind of an awkward puberty where she knew something was wrong with her, but didn't know what. Oh, I don't um, think kind of. I don't. I don't <laughs> think it's kind of awkward. I think puberty in general is kind of awkward, and then add this on top of it. There's um. 
there's you know a sequence where she has you know she has a best friend and they kind of sexually explore each other mm-hmm. a bit and she, she this is you know this kind of clues her in as to you know that she might not be right yeah you know yeah, normal yeah. even though the book the book is very careful to to say you know normality is not a thing it's like a construct and that mm. there's actually a really good quote about that and i hope that my bookmark actually <laughs> would you say that that is kind of what the book is working towards that that uh thesis statement as it were kind of yeah i mean that that's one of the points that it makes is um let me read the let me read the exact quote i do like Great. to do that on the show when it's possible mm-hmm. so this is um she's talking about her experience with a doctor and how she thought that he was going to help him yeah. her you know get through everything So um, I thought that after talking to me, he would decide that I was normal and leave me alone. But I was beginning to understand something about normality. Normality wasn't normal. It couldn't be. If normality were normal, everyone could leave it alone. They could sit back and let normality manifest itself. But people, and especially doctors, had doubts about normality. They weren't sure normality was up to the job. And so they felt inclined to give it a boost. (laughs) Ooh, interesting. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I don't... I find myself... You know, as I'm reading articles or what have you on anything where, like, normal almost is, like, not taboo isn't the right word, but the word normal does not seem to sit well with people well, the way it used to. Because it's almost kind of kind of oppressive. Like, it, I mean, it, yeah. just, it, it says there is a way to be, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and if you're not that way, you know, there's something wrong with you. I th- yeah, I think the the more acceptable word that I that I see now is typical. Right, where it has less of a an implication on what should be, and more just we looked at the data, and this is the most common thing. Yeah, um, and or so this is then- the, this is the way that most people are, and so because of that, it is the only quote unquote right way to be. You know, well, that, that's what normal implies. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Whereas I think now you you see more people in medical literature or scientific literature saying typical or atypical because mm-hmm. uh, it doesn't, at least for now, contains no judgment. It's purely about data. Yeah, right. Um, um, but yeah, I mean, the whole... I really, I, I really did enjoy this book. I don't like to just say, oh, I liked it because I don't think that's a very <laughs> good way to evaluate stuff. But I think it's it's very... I like things that are thematically, um, they have a lot of thematic integrity, I guess. And mm. this, this does, I mean, there's just a lot of good stuff in here about dual duality and, and transformation. You've and, said, um, you've said transformation, meanings. you've said transformation a couple of times. Can you elaborate on that other than the kind of self-identification change that Cal goes through? Uh, yeah, you know, the transformation of Desdemona and Lefty from Greeks to Americans, the transformation, mm-hmm. like the generational transformation that goes from, you know, first generation immigrants who oh, okay. kind of miss, they, they they retain more about their home country. And then like second generation immigrants who like Milton knows how to speak Greek mostly, but he doesn't really write it very well. Mm. And he doesn't really hold up with like the tradition, the religious traditions. And then the third generation of kids who are like thoroughly Americanized and 
have you know little little to no relation to their their home country does yeah you brought up nature versus nurture earlier um and i'm not i'm not sure how the book tackles it does it seem like these transformations are the choice of the characters or you know obviously some of cows are are not his or her choice it's just kind of a a set of given circumstances um how does that factor into nature versus nurture if that I mean a lot, makes sense a lot of the time it does it comes down to choice but it's a choice that is kind of forced by mm. nature so like lefty and desdemona leaving is um something they didn't have to do okay. but you know the country is burning down and it's not safe anymore so they leave like calliope could just go through with the procedure to you know to become a girl you know to become what she's been raised as mm. but you know at that last crucial moment makes a choice based on you know based on the way she feels because she's i mean she's already had the experience of being sexually attracted to women her body is already kind of larger and more muscular and she has like an adam's apple mm. and a lot of things that that men have like the book doesn't make like a definitive declarative statement that like nature or nurture is is the thing like it's it's a it's often a blend of the two that yeah that makes that choice for you you know Hmm. i didn't i interesting so cal just has undergoes no procedure and then just undergoes no procedure yeah and then just changes her self-identification to be, you know, to be a boy. Yeah, I, yeah, I think that does kind of walk the line between nature versus nurture. <laughs> yeah, because it is. It's like you are just acknowledging what nature gave you, and then just saying, "Well, this is what I'm going to do with it," as opposed to uh, kind of full on changing it or full on surrendering to what mm-hmm. you were given in the first place. Yeah, and and you know, as as Cal says, you know, he still has. sort of feminine tendencies like he's not really at home among groups of men Mm -hmm. if that makes sense oh yeah 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 Yeah, i mean like not fully comfortable just hanging out with with a bunch of guys and feeling like one of the guys like there's still there's still something that separates them yeah i mean the tricky thing i I can't speak to it but i would imagine (laughs) the tricky thing is that you know a world that is only just yeah like even now is still not it's still binary gender gender is largely binary um and to exist in between those two states as it were i don't know um is a very tough choice yeah i mean that's where that's where middlesex the name i think comes yeah. into play is this is he you know even though he self-identifies as a man like it's not like he has a penis it's still very it's difficult for him to form sexual relationships with people because even when they don't have a negative reaction to you know the way that he is he's Mm -hmm. so worried that they will that he often just avoids that entirely i was just gonna ask that if it if it almost feels like he picks a he picks one or picks male almost 
not even for himself, but for other people. Uh, How do you mean? In in that, like, rather than engage someone in in some sort of, I am this other thing that you are not comfortable with, I am going to choose male so that I can just give that to you so that you are not uncomfortable with me. Does that make sense? It it does. I mean, I do I do think that, you know, he's a he's got with the exception of the genitals, he's got like a male physique, like mm. his chromosomes are X and Y, you know, he's a male in in terms of that. Um and he's, you know, sexually attracted to women. So, I mean, he he is male, but there are just, you know, there are certain little things about that that are holdovers from you know, the way that he was raised, which is, yeah. you know, as a, as a girl for yeah. 16 years. Like I imagine, I imagine you could do a lot to forget those behaviors, but not, you know, not everything. No. And, and those are f- incredibly formative years in terms of behavior and, and traits and, you know, it's what kind of gets set in stone. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. But yeah, lots lots of things that are more than one thing. And I actually I wanted to read one more passage. There's, I'm just kind of shoehorning no. it in here. You're not allowed. Like, I think it goes. <laughs> I think it goes well. Wait, is it from is it the from book. the book? Yes, it's, from, it's, from it's not book. from another book that you're just shoehorning. No, I, I just wanted to read something. I hope you guys. Like <laughs> I've got this magazine. I've got this highlights magazine. I want to read from. Yeah, go ahead. But yeah, in in the scene leading up to this, um, Lefty has had his first stroke, and Desdemona thinks that he is dead. Okay. And um, momentarily, she feels kind of she's you know sad, of course, but also she feels kind of relieved because this you know the secret of their of their relationship to one another is still weighing on her and oh, weighs yeah. on her practically for her entire life. Um. Okay, so here we go. Emotions, in my experience, aren't covered by single words. I don't believe in sadness, joy, or regret. Maybe the best proof that the language is patriarchal is that it oversimplifies feeling. I'd like to have at my disposal complicated hybrid emotions, Germanic train car constructions like, say, the happiness that attends disaster, or the disappointment of sleeping with one's fantasy. (laughs) I'd like to show how intimations of mortality brought on by aging family members connects with the hatred of mirrors that begins in middle age. <laughs> I'd like to have a word for the sadness inspired by failing restaurants, as well as for the excitement of getting a room with a mini bar. <laughs> <laughs> I've never had the right words to describe my life. And now that I've entered my story, I need them more than ever. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah. So there, I mean, a really there, good passage. Yeah. There, there are a lot of passages that feel a little, um, a little unnecessary, but usually the, you know, the prose is lively enough that, yeah, it sounds like it. It's pretty it's pretty fun to read anyway. Well, and that that seems to speak to the larger thematic concerns of the book of Yeah, definitely. trying it's to like live we, live between labels. Yeah, like we try to we oversimplify things in an effort to make them like easier to convey or to understand, I guess. Well, and I was I was speaking to an a totally unrelated project. I was talking to um a doctor the other day, not I don't know. He's a professor at a medical university. Um, <laughs> I'm not like I'm not going to divulge a doctor's visit on air. Um, and he was talking about he's Italian. He was born in Italy, uh, so he's completely fluent in Italian and probably one or two other languages other than English. 
but he was ta- we were talking about language as a limiter and when he wants to kind of philosophize or something he will use italian in his brain but when he's speaking to patients he does use english and thinks in english because for him it's a very scientific language and it's easier to be very clear uh while still having a large vocabulary mm-hmm. whereas a lot of the romantic languages have far fewer words uh so you can kind of piece them together for more philosophical or multi-layered sentences um and it is interesting that like in different language we were talking about how in different languages people think differently because of what language allows you to do uh, which is just what that made me think of the <laughs> idea that the idea that because of if you don't have a word for it then what is it you know yeah. what i mean no i do i do really like that about romantic languages though like as a writer i really like how precise english can be mm-hmm. but i also like when stuff like the Germans didn't want to come up with another word for bat, so they just called it a flying mouse. <laughs> they just jammed or, two words together. Yeah, or like a, a glove is just a hand shoe. <laughs> like, I think that's great. I wish we did more of that. Well, and I think I read something years ago about how German sense of humor is very different from uh, romantic languages senses of humor and and English specifically also not that English is a wholly romantic language but because of the way that sentences get constructed in in German you can't have the same double entendres that you can have in other languages Mm -hmm. so you have to do very like kind of literal circumstantial jokes you can't do (laughs) like you you couldn't do that's what she said jokes in Germany the same way Oh, that's too bad. Yeah, they're, they're really missing out. Missing out. <laughs> <laughs> that's why they're always so angry. I don't understand why people like the American version of The Office. I just don't get it. Uh, so as we wrap up, Andrew, why did you read this book in the first place? Um, My uh, fiancé recommended it as a big one. Oh, okay. And, um, has it won awards or anything? I don't. I don't know. It I don't remember. Was, um, Does it say on the on the? I want to say it won or was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. Okay. Um, hold on, I'm looking it up. Uh, yeah, Pulitzer Prize winning novel published in 2002, not 2003, okay. like I said. And right. um, you know, this I read it at this specific point in time because last episode we made a. We we noticed how many books from <laughs> nineteen hundred we had read, and I I decided I wanted wanted to read something a little more um, modern and something a little heavier, I guess, because yeah. like the Wizard of Oz and Turn of the Screw and um, War of the Worlds all have a lot going on in their own way, but like thematically they're very simple. Yeah, different different books for different folks that's that's not an idiom (laughs) it doesn't rhyme different different books for different nooks yeah (laughs) different books for different looks i'm running out of words that rhyme with different books with different hooks yeah there you go that's that's good that's actually not that bad there it's not that bad if i had a bookstore that would be the subtitle for my bookstore we we workshop it a little bit more. We'll come back to. It. All right, great. <laughs> come by my bookstore. Well, it'll have a different name next week. I don't know what it's. Come name look is at there. the book. Come, <laughs> come look at the books. That's a good one. 
Anyway. So, yeah, Middlesex, read it. Yeah, you should read it. You People should read, should read it. it. Read it. Right. Yeah, okay. So, if you want to buy this book, we're going <laughs> to dive right into end the show spiel now. Oh, great. If you want to buy this book, you can go to our website at www.overduepodcast.com where we will have an Amazon link for this and the next two books that we're going to be reading. Sure. If you click on those links and buy those books through our site, we get a little bit of money. We don't have to put up unsightly Google ads or whoever's ads and make our site look like garbage. Um, Up on that website, we also have links to our podcast on iTunes, where you should definitely rate and review us. We would love you for that. And uh, an RSS feed, if you don't care for iTunes, which I can totally understand why you wouldn't. (laughs) But still, go review us on iTunes iTunes and then come back and just don't use iTunes. That's fine, too. Or or subscribe or whatever. We don't want to boss you around. We're not the boss of you. Except read these books that we like. We strongly recommend that you read these books, but we're not the boss of your ears or your eyes. Fair enough. But um, I will tell you that if you wanted to direct your eyes to Facebook, you could find us at facebook.com slash overdue pod, where you can write us questions or you can tweet us questions or comments uh, at twitter.com slash overdue pod, or you can write them via email, good old fashioned email, which electronic mail, electronic mail. Uh, at overduepod at gmail.com. We appreciate all those modes of communication. Maybe we'll open up like a telephone line and a voicemail. Got to find... Take some callers. Take some callers, you know, <laughs> get a P.O. box. Get a, Yeah, it'll be great. In but, the future. We, we can only get these things if we continue to grow, and we can only continue to grow through word of mouth. So if you listen to the show and you like us, we would really appreciate it if you would... Just stick some headphones in one of your friend's ears and tell them to listen to these guys talk about these books. <laughs> Grab your friend's listening device and subscribe to us on it. Forcibly. Yeah. And then they'll just listen to it later. Yeah. That sounds like a good plan. <laughs> okay, everyone. We will be back next week. Until then, goodbye. Good reading. Good reading.